0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, let's uh, take a few moments to make sure that we are spiritually prepared, ready to focus on the word this evening and in right relationship with the Lord in terms of being in fellowship so that God the Holy Spirit can make the study that we have this evening profitable for our spiritual life. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John one nine if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, the psalmist said that it is in the light of your word that we see light. It is as we submit to the teaching of your word... And as we come to understand reality as you have defined it, that we are able to live consistent with things as they are, not as our sin natures want to fantasize that they should be. Father, we realize we live in the devil's world, a world that runs and operates on various fantasies that have been generated by the vain imaginations of men in order to try to make sense of a world without including you in their thinking. And, Father, that is often frustrating for us. It's often a challenge for us as we uh, have to engage and interact with people and policies and uh, things that are going on. And yet our mission here is to function as salt and light, to have an influence and impact on the culture around us, primarily through the dissemination of the gospel, primarily through teaching the word, explaining the word, encouraging those others to either a trust in Christ as Savior, or to study the Word and to make that a part of their life. But often we only have secondary impacts through the things that we do, the work that we do. And, Father, we just pray that we might uh, be faithful as we carry out our spiritual life, that those around us might be blessed by uh, secondary application, blessing by association through our own faithful walk with you. Father, challenge us. This evening in our study with the message of this passage, that we might be faithful in our walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we got a little further along in chapter 16, where we deal with the bold judgments. For those who haven't been here or missed a couple of sessions, we're looking at the tribulation period. We're in the second half. Last time I made a little adjustment to the chart I've been putting uh, up here the tribulation period which is a period future to us is a period that is described in scripture as a 7 year period we get that from uh Daniel chapter uh 9 where Daniel was given a vision of the last 7 years in Israel's history which has been put off until the end of uh, end of human history after the church age, this is broken down into two, three-and-a-half-year periods, and in the center of which we're going to have the abomination of desolation. Uh, the book of Revelation focus on, focuses on three series of judgments. The seal judgments that come in consecutive order, the seventh seal judgment is opened and reveals seven trumpet judgments. Then those come in the first half. Then we have the abomination of desolation, there's a mention in Revelation 10:4, brief mention of another s- section of judgments called the seven thunders, which are sealed up and unwritten, so we don't know anything about them. And then there's the final series of judgments, the bold judgments that culminate in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth, the destruction of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and uh, Satan, and then the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. So we've looked at these bold judgments. They come in the second half, they involve these horrible, horrific judgments, much more extreme than anything that has taken place earlier in the tribulation period. All of the horrible things that transpired under the seal and trumpet judgments are just multiplied uh, almost tenfold in the in the uh, bowl judgments there's these incredible boils that occur, painful uh, malignant sores that uh, the pain just cannot be dealt with and the All of the seas, the saltwater seas, are turned into blood. All the fresh water is turned into blood. The sun's heat increases uh, to uh, scorching those upon the earth. Darkness comes upon the throne of the beast, which I think is more metaphorical related to uh, just the darkness of of the soul. The sixth judgment we looked at last time, has to do not with a judgment poured out upon the earth or upon people, but it is a drying up of the river Euphrates. And I pointed out last time that the significance of the Euphrates is that it, it forms the eastern boundary of the land that God originally uh, designated in his promise to Abraham. And so that is why that border and the Euphrates River is important. And then there will be this opens the pathway for the kings of the east, we don't know who they are. They're just various political powers, armies moving in from the east toward uh, Israel. And so that way is opened up. And then we'll see tonight, we'll get to the last uh, bold judgments, the hail, earthquake and hail on the earth. And it is at the end of that that the second coming occurs. The bowl judgments were first introduced in Revelation 15:6. Seven angels coming out of the temple of God with these seven bowls. Now, that's important because when we come to certain elements at the last part of the chapter, there are going to be references back to the one who speaks and coming out of the temple. So this sets the context for uh, what we'll see in the latter latter part. Uh, Revelation 16, 1. John writes, then I heard a loud voice. The voice comes out of the temple. We know that at this point no one is in the temple other than God the Father, so this is the voice of God the Father. So the voice we hear speaking is the voice of the Father coming out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. So we go, we've gone through the six bowl judgments, stopping last time around verse thirteen or fourteen, as the after the sixth bowl judgment come is poured out on the Euphrates, it dries up, and then we read in verse thirteen, I saw, John says, three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. Now that comparison to frogs is uh, significant in that frogs, under the Mosaic law, were unclean animals. And so it's also kind of a reminder of the frog plague during the time of the uh, exodus from Egypt. And, and then... Um, uh, so these are like frogs in that sense, so it's emphasizing that they're unclean, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So these are four, I mean are three unclean spirits. The, the term unclean spirit is often used in the Gospels as a synonym for demons. Then in verse 14, it begins, for they are spirits of demons performing signs. Now, one thing I've added to this since last time is that this initial clause here, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, should be seen as a parenthetical explanation giving a little more information about these, these three frog-like spirits. They are demons, uh, they are sign-performing demons, and we've already seen that in passages like 2 Thessalonians 2 and others, that it is these deceptive signs that are, that are performed by the Antichrist and the false prophet that deceive so many on the earth to follow them. So their function, though, is to go out to the kings of the earth. It is the, the verb for going out is an infinitive of purpose, and so that is their function. They are designed, their mission is to go to all the kings of the earth to bring them to, uh, battle in Israel. So they go to the kings of the earth and of the whole world and the word there interestingly enough, it's translated uh, world, is not the word cosmos, it's not the word ionos, which is what we've studied in Hebrews on Thursday night, it's the word oikoumene, which is related to the, has the idea of the inhabited world. We have the word oikos for house, and we have uh, forms of that word, like orkatameo, which is a word that sometimes is translated economy, or kanameo rather, translated economy, that's, that's, uh, just brought over into English, and it has to do with administration, management, stewardship, and then we have this word, which indicates a, the inhabited world. So it is, it's emphasizing the totality of the involvement of the nations of the earth In this battle. So this message is going out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, this is a particularly important passage to pay attention to because it it is foreshadowing what transpires in chapter 17, 18, and the culmination of the day of the Lord in chapter 19, which is the uh, final uh, battle in this Armageddon campaign. As I pointed out last time, the word that's translated battle is "polemos," which is a word that has, where we get our word polemic, and it really has to do more with a series of battles or a campaign or a war rather than one individual battle. And as we'll see in our study, there are several uh, aspects to the Armageddon campaign. So they begin to come together and to gather together at this battle called here the great day of God the Almighty. Now, a couple of things we ought to notice just in terms of summary on the day of the Lord First of all, the day of the Lord is a general term that is used of a time of divine judgment. It's a general term for a time of divine judgment. It doesn't always refer, as we'll see, to the end of the tribulation period. There's a... A lot of discussion among scholars as to just what the extent of the day of the Lord is. I know that there, even among dispensationalists, there's some slight disagreements. There are some that believe the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation, extends all the way until the end of the millennium. There are others who see it as really a specific, that each passage is defining a specific Day of the Lord, a specific time of divine intervention and judgment, which is what I lean to at this point. You have a day of the Lord related to the tribulation. Then you have another day of the Lord related to the judgment of the present heavens and earth at the end of the millennial kingdom as seen in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll briefly look at that verse uh, tonight as well. So it's just a general term for a time of divine judgment, and the context is going to determine which judgment is being addressed. So it's um, in this context here, of course, we're talking about what happens at the end of the tribulation period. So the second point up there is that the day here refers to the campaign of Armageddon, the war between the nations of the earth, the kings of the earth, and God. This is... Uh, not the same as what we saw at the sixth seal judgment, when the there's the the stars are falling to the earth, and there's this great earthquake, and the kings of the earth and the great military leaders are seeking to crawl into caves and hide, and calling upon the earth to fall in around them to protect them from the wrath of God and of the uh, the one who's on the throne and the Lamb. This is that happens in the first half. This is at the end. Of the second half of the tribulation period, so the nations of the earth now gather together to do war not against themselves but against God, and He is allowed them to come together. These are various passages all that relate to this campaign psalm two one through three daniel eleven forty three and forty four uh, Joel 2, 10 to 3, 2, passage we'll look at this evening, along with Zechariah 14, 2 and 3. And then Revelation 19, 11 to 21 summarizes the end events there. And then the third point up there in terms of sober, summary is that the day in the tribulation is accompanied by various astrophysical our astrogeophysical disturbances, there's earthquakes, thunder, lightnings, the sun's darkened, the moon is turned to blood, and this is mentioned in uh, three passages I have up there, Joel 2.10, Matthew 24.29 to 31, and this passage in Revelation 16.16. 16. Well, let's start by just looking at the passage in Joel 2. Joel 2. Joel is written to Israel at a time of judgment in the Old Testament, but the passages that are being referred to in and, um, and Joel 2 take the events of a historic judgment and then extrapolate that uh, on into a future judgment. What is mentioned here never happened historically, so it is a future time event. Now take a look at we'll we'll just start at verse around verse um, around verse ten as we see this description taking place here the earth quakes the earthquakes before them the heavens tremble notice the earth is quaking the heavens are shaking the sun and the moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. So all of this indicates some sort of phenomena that takes place not only upon the earth, but also in the heavens. And then verse 11, the Lord gives voice before His army for His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now the next section from verse 12, all the way down to about verse uh, 27, really talks about the need for Israel to turn back to God and for them to return to the Lord. And so there is a call for them to repent. Now, you have to understand this within the context of the Old Testament. That this word that is used here, that is translated turning, for example, in verse 12, we read, Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Uh, return, there's that's the same word again in verse 13, it, that's, it's translated turn in verse 12 and return in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God for his gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. This is the invitation of God to Israel there towards the end of the tribulation period to turn to him. Now this word that's translated turn, turn is a Hebrew word, shuv. Uh, it's got a B on the end, S-H-U-B, but it's really pronounced like a, like a V. And today, even in Israel, if you have a non-observant Jew who becomes an observant Jew, they'll refer to that as doing shuva. They're they're returning to the Lord. And they get this terminology out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Now, in the context, remember, Deuteronomy is one of the most significant books in the Old Testament because it is a rehearsal of the Mosaic law and, and a summary of... Uh, ...of Moses' prophecies about what will happen in their future... ...and a summary of the cursing and blessings that God promises Israel... ...cursings if they're disobedient, blessing if they're obedient... ...with the warning, and when you get into chapter 28, that they will be disobedient... ...they will be taken out of the land, they will be scattered throughout the world... ...they will be living amongst the pagan nations for uh, many generations... But then God will bring them back from all of the earth to the land that, that uh, He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there they would be returned though as a regenerate people, a people who had who were trusting in the Messiah, and God would bring them all of the blessings He had promised at that time. And this gets summarized. The the turning point, if you pardon the pun, the turning point is in Deuteronomy 30. Uh Verses one through three, where Moses said, "Show sure it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you called them and you called them to mind in all nations where the Lord God, your God, has banished you, so at this point they 're still scattered throughout the th- throughout the earth, and he says, and you Return to the Lord your God. So while they are in the state of being scattered, while they're scattered among all the nations, uh, you, at that point they remember these things, they call recall them to mind, and they return or turn back to the Lord, and that's the word shuv. So this is where it picks up its heavy theological meaning. The word is used I think um, there's only about ten other words in the Hebrew that are used more than this word. It can mean just to turn around. it can be used for repetition. It can be used with a lot of different senses, but in some contexts, it becomes a word that is sometimes it's translated repent, but repent isn't quite the right word it's really a turning to God because they're they're not saved and they're turning to God and becoming saved. It's not like repentance, which is more oriented to someone who's a disobedient believer and is turning back to God. Uh, So the passage says, And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you, from captivity he will br- bring them back from captivity back to the land and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you now that is the background for understanding what's being said here in in Joel chapter 2 so there uh, the Lord says in verse 12 again, Now therefore turn to me with all your heart. See, it's that same uh, terminology. In Deuteronomy 32 it said, Return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul. So turn to him with all your heart. Uh, rend your heart, not your garments. Verse 13, Return to the Lord for he's gracious and merciful. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent. Leave a blessing behind him. And it goes on in the following verses, emphasize their need to turn back to him. Verse 18, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and pity his people, and the idea there is to have compassion on them. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied by them, and I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. It's the blessing that comes to them when they are restored to the land. This is what happens at the end of the tribulation period. And then I want you to just skip down to verse 27. Verse 27 again says, um, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. See, there's. it will never happen again. So this can't be talking about the historical return after Babylon because they disobeyed God again and were taken out of the land. So it must refer only to that in time return. And then we have the passage that most of you are familiar with, especially if you've read through Acts uh, chapter 1. This is the section that Peter quotes on, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 28 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is terminology that is used in the uh, New Covenant passages in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Now, this applies to Israel, that part Applies to Israel, and it is not something that relates to the Gentile nations, but has to do with the fulfillment of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. So, this is what comes after the nation turns back to God. Uh, your young men shall see visions. Also, my men servants, my maid servants, and I will pour out my spirit in those days, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. And so what happens at this same time? You have this, these astro-geophysical uh, phenomena, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. This is just using these terms metaphorically. The sun apparently will be darkened, and because of that, the moon will no longer reflect as much sunlight, so it will look as if it is uh, red, and there 'll probably be because of these battles and other things going on there 'll be enough uh, stuff in the atmosphere, dust and other things to make it appear red like it does sometimes when you get up uh, early in the uh, morning and you see the moon setting or late in the early in the evening when you see it first coming up and there 's a lot of smog and pollution and stuff in the atmosphere. You see the moon is very yellow and may even take on a little bit of a reddish hue at times. So this is uh, what will transpire then. The sun shall be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So that's the same phenomena we're going to see described when we get into uh, the Revelation passage, Matthew and other passages. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, see, it's right at this same time that you have this passage, verse 32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, remember, we studied this last spring because Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And there's so many people who take that as being a, justification passage that he's talking about uh, being uh, being justified, that is, moving from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. But that's not what this is talking about, because what we've seen here is that, first of all, there's already been the turning back to God by the people. That's their individual justification. Then, afterward, there's, the, there's blessing, there's the pouring out of the Spirit, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Um, And then there's at the time of the end time judgment, there's the uh, accompanying all of these things that are happening uh, in the heavens and in the skies and on the earth that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered is a better sense here because what has happened, as we'll see, is that the surviving remnant of the believer, the Jewish believers who have followed the warning of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that when they see the signs, the abomination of desolation and these things, that they are to head for the hill. So they leave Jerusalem, leave Judah, and their isolated down in the area we think of as Jordan today around the area of Petra, which is referred to in the scripture as Basra. And that is where they will turn as a nation. Now this pulls together several things that we've covered over the last, I don't know, six months at different times, that the, the, you have the nation reject Jesus as Messiah. And that culminates in Matthew 13 when the pharisees accused jesus of casting out demons in the power of beelzebub and remember i pointed out when we were in second kings chapter 1 that the only other time you have the mention of beelzebub in the uh, beelzebub in the old testament is with uh, azariah and he is the son of ahab and he's trying to get help healing his uh, whatever the injury was that he had when he fell through the window up in the, up in the roof of the palace. And so he's trying to go to the, the god, the Baal of uh, Ekron, call, which the Jews refer to somewhat sarcastically and uh, disrespectfully as Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. And so when the Pharisees come along and, in Matthew chapter 13 and accuse Jesus of casting out demons and healing people by the power of Beelzebub, they're, t- they're making this kind of a connection and saying that there's this uh, illegitimate use of demonic power by Jesus. They're, they're rejecting his messianic claims. But as the Pharisees, they are a corporate group that represents the nation as a whole, and there is a national rejection of Israel. But there are still thousands at that point, thousands before the cross, that have trusted him as Messiah. And we know that on the day of Pentecost and afterwards that there's another at least... 10, 15, 20,000 or more in Jerusalem during the, those feast days from April through June that, um, that get saved. Probably, and after Pentecost on through the summer, there's thousands that get saved. And among them, there are many Pharisees individually that got saved. So when, uh, the, Jesus said that this was the blasphem, you blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and there, uh, you will not be forgiven, Of this, it isn't individual forgiveness for justification. He's talking about the nation has now reached a point of no return, where nationally they have rejected, rejected, and rejected. God's not going to extend grace to that generation anymore, and that generation's never again uh, going to be able to uh, will, will, will again respond in such a way that will forestall the judgment of 70 A.D. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And all these things come back to this because, again, when, when uh, Peter is speaking there, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, he's coming out. And he's quoting this particular passage to connect the k- kinds of things the Holy Spirit can do. And none of the what's interesting is none of the things that are mentioned here happen in Acts two. There's no the sons and daughters don't prophesy. Nobody's dreaming dreams. Nobody's having visions but they are speaking in languages that they haven't learned. And that's not mentioned here. So nothing that's mentioned here happened in Acts 2. What did happen in Acts 2 isn't mentioned here. So Peter isn't saying this is the fulfillment of Joel 2. He is saying this is like what happened in Joel 2, because if Israel had originally responded By accepting Jesus as Messiah, then the day of Pentecost fulfillment would have been the outpouring, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But because they rejected Jesus, there's still the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but it is now going to have a different function because now it's giving birth to the church and so it fulfills the, uh, feast types. So, This passage is not fulfilled till the end of the uh, tribulation period. And then when you go to the first two verses in the next chapter, we read, for behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. What is it that Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 said? Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity. And have compassion upon you. See, that is what is depicted here in uh, Joel three uh, one and um, Joel three one and two. I will also gather all the nations, and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Now, there's various views on the valley of Jehoshaphat. One is that it's the Kidron Valley right there at, at um, right there at Jerusalem, and another view that I've recently uh come across is that it's a little further south of Jerusalem towards Bethlehem, it's the valley where Jehoshaphat defeated the uh enemy, the um, uh Edomites, and it's the valley of Berecha, which they call the Valley of Blessing there and just south of uh, of Jerusalem. So anyway, the when we get to this day of the Lord passage and we look at the the characteristics of it, what we see is that that in the midst of this, there is going to be this tremendous return, genuine spiritual uh, revival in Israel, and the Jews that have escaped are going to turn and, as a nation, accept uh, Jesus as their as their Messiah. And at that time, it's going to be right in the midst of all these uh, final uh, judgments in the bowl judgments. Another passage that mentions this is in Zechariah 14, uh, verse 2. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. And there uh, the Lord says, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Not just up in Armageddon, as we'll see, but they will battle against Jerusalem itself. That's one phase of the Armageddon campaign. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. So this shows that half the city is is basically destroyed during the campaign of Armageddon, but there will be a rescue of a remnant of those who are uh, saved in, in Jerusalem. So now let's go back and look at our passage in Revelation uh, Revelation sixteen fifteen. Now Revelation sixteen fifteen is injected in the middle of this, and is not in the flow of action. Verse uh, 14, 13 and 14, talks about the spirits of the demons performing the signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. And then there's this interjection here. It says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So this verse just is an abrupt interruption of the flow of the action related to the bold judgments. And so we need to ask several questions as we look at this verse. Uh, First of all, we need to define who's who's speaking here and to whom is he speaking. And we'll see that this verse is very close to two verses, Revelation 3.3 and Revelation 3.18, where the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing the church the churches to Laodicea and the church of uh, Philadelphia, I believe, and that this terminology is similar. And so it, it is very clear that this must be the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking here. So that leads to the next question. What does it mean when he says that he is coming as a thief? And this is really an interesting metaphor. And, uh, there's different aspects to this, and I've never, haven't ever really become completely settled on uh, on its exact interpretation, primarily because I've been at pre-trib meetings over the years where I've heard uh, people make various statements and arguments over different things related to uh, passages. And it's because it it seems, when you look at the First Thessalonians 5 passage, which we'll look at uh, well, there we go. It's right there. You yourselves, talking to Thessalonians, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord uh, so comes as a thief in the night. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And the way this is normally read is that the day of the Lord is interpreted to refer to the entire trib- tribulation period uh, from from the beginning on, and of course we understand there is some sort of transition between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period, but it refer, refers to that day of the Lord as a thief in the night. And so this is usually interpreted to, to mean it's going to come, it's going to taken by surprise. And you as a believer aren't going to be taken by surprise uh, when the day of the Lord comes. Now, as I've looked at this again, what's impressed me in the as I just had a fresh look at this this last week is that all of the passages that use this thief in the night metaphor are all related to the Day of the Lord. Now, if we don't take the Day of the Lord as some do, like Dr. Walverd and Dr. Pentecost and others at Dallas, always taken that position, and I've heard a lot of guys critique him on this that if the day of the Lord is not that broad term that covers the whole trib, but if it's a more narrow focus on the final judgments at the end, then we wouldn't be reading First Thess 5 so much to mean that, um, that the rapture, see, that's what's often sort of thought of there is that you know perfectly well that the day of the Lord, i.e. the rapture, isn't going to come as a thief in the night. But perhaps what he's saying is that you're not going to be there, but the day of the Lord isn't going to come like a thief in the night because you, brethren, you're not in darkness because you're saved, so this day is not going to overtake you as a thief. The other passages, such as 2 Peter three ten, also uses this thief in the night metaphor in referring to the day of the Lord. Uh, but this isn't the same day of the Lord as we have at the end of the tribulation period. This is the day of the Lord in terms of the final, the destruction of the present heavens and earth, when God destroys the present heavens and earth before He creates the new heavens and the new earth. And in Second Peter three ten, we read, "But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night." Now, if this is talking about something that's unexpected or sudden. I don't see that that's going to be all that unexpected and sudden, because the believers who are left alive after the, that uh, Gog revolution, Satan is released at the end of the millennial period. He's going to generate a rebellion among the human race. They're going to lead an army against the New Jerusalem or the city of Jerusalem against the Lord, and God's just going to vaporize them with fire from heaven. So who's left alive? Millennial believers, and of course all of the angels, church age believers, Old Testament saints, and resurrection body, are any of them going to be surprised that the present heavens and earth are going to be burned up? I don't think so. Um, I don't think it's going to come as a as a surprise or something unexpected. So maybe this 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 imagery has another sense. That's the question I started asking myself the other day. Now, if we look at, I started looking through thief. Where is thief used in the New Testament? And you look at various other passages. It's either describing somebody acted like a thief and stole money. But there's one interesting passage, and that's in John 10.10. Where Jesus says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So part of the imagery there isn't this suddenness, it is destruction. Now I got to thinking, well, what, I, what you see in each of these instances of the day of the Lord is something is being destroyed. Not that there is this emphasis on something that's sudden or unexpected, but that the day of the Lord is coming to destroy something, and something something will be uh will be destroyed. Uh, for example, and you might just hold your place if you want to turn there. If you want to look at uh, Revelation let me see, these two passages that are similar to this are in Revelation three three and Revelation three eighteen. Revelation three three and three eighteen. Three three, the Lord is addressing. I, I said Philadelphia earlier. It's a church in Sardis. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. I was talking to them as believers. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, that imagery could be suddenness. I could see that there. I could see it as unexpected because they're living in carnality. But I could also see it's going to bring some judgment and something destructive for them because they're sitting there living in their own little fantasy world and carnal rebellion against God. And Jesus is saying that if you don't uh, turn and change and watch, then there's going to be uh, a judgment that's coming. And so the terminology there is similar to what we see in uh, 1615. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment. See, he can't be addressing the end of the tribulation people because this is like right at the end of the tribulation. He doesn't have much time. Uh, The only believers that are left have escaped into into the wilderness. The Antichrist has martyred most of the others. Uh, But it does make sense that that the writer that that the Lord is stepping out of the action describing the flow of the bold judgments and addressing church age believers and basically saying to them that uh, Jesus is coming back and you need to be ready for His return because of the the loss of loss of rewards that will come. Let me address that in just a second or more fully in just a second clarify it. So Revelation 3.18 then, Revelation 3.3 has similar language. Revelation 3.18 we read, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve, eye salve that you may see." So the point is that there is the, both of those passages are warning church age believers not to be failures in the spiritual life and be exposed in terms of having no spiritual fruit, no spiritual production, no spiritual maturity, and thus standing empty, naked at the judgment seat, at the judgment seat of Christ. So, in light of these passages, I'm suggesting that the imagery of the thief, it may have more to do with the thief coming to destroy. Jesus is coming. He's going to destroy the human good works of the unbeliever. They're burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus is going to come at the day of the Lord and destroy the uh, the world empire, the Antichrist destroy Satan and all of his works. Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to destroy the present heavens and earth uh, like a thief in the night uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom. So that imagery of destruction fits all of those all of those particular uh, uses. Now, one more one more point on this. As we look at this question, we say, okay, who's Jesus really addressing here in terms of this particular passage? If he's addressing those who are near the end of the tribulation, the few surviving uh, tribulation believers, then his coming as a thief would then relate to the second coming, and that could very well make sense. Uh the the idea of coming in judgment as a thief fits with first Tess five, two, and four as well as second uh uh Thessalonians three, ten that the or excuse me, the first Thess five, two, and four passage that refers to the second coming is like a thief. However, in this instance the blessing that he pronounces here would be on those who are keeping the garments clean, and he's, that would only that would be addressing these believers right at the end of the tribulation when they're really concerned not about obedience and living the Christian life, they're concerned about escaping and surviving. The other option, which does seem to fit the scenario better, is that this is a uh, parenthetical challenge to those in the who in the church age who are reading uh Revelation that they need to recognize the seriousness of what will happen when the Lord comes back and they need to be careful and watchful in their spiritual life uh, lest they suffer loss when Christ appears at the rapture to initiate the judgments of the tribulation period And so that fits with the context of the warnings to both the church at Sardis and the church of Laodicea and makes it, drives it home for us as a direct application that we need as we read through all of this in Revelation. We get caught up in all of the uh, different events and the chronologies and everything else. But the point is that there is an horrendous period of accountability coming. There's judgment That's what Jesus is picturing there at the very beginning in Revelation 1. He's coming as a judge. There's going to be a judgment on the church, Revelation 2 and 3. There's going to be a judgment on the earth and those who have rebelled against him in the tribulation period, a judgment on unbelieving Israel, a judgment on Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and then there's going to be the uh, millennial kingdom concluding with the great white throne judgment. The focal point of revelation is all on these judgments. And so that's just this parenthetical remark. And then we come to verse 16, which says, And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, or literally Har Megiddo, Har being the mountain mountain and Megiddo being uh, the location of the ancient city of Megiddo. Now, if you take this in context, you go back to verse 13, John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. And verse 14, they go out to the kings of the earth, and they gather them together so that they here is a reference back to the uh, function of these three frog-like spirits who are gathering together uh, the kings of the earth, of the whole earth, to to do battle at the great day of God the Almighty. So they are being gathered together at the place of Armageddon. Now, as we look at the Armageddon campaign, on the left you have a map of of Israel. The Valley of Armageddon is the valley that is below the Hill of Megiddo. It's called the Valley of Jezreel, also the Valley of Esdralon. It lies just to the, uh, east or northeast of the, of the Mount Carmel Ridge and extends from, uh, Haifa, which is the, uh, port area that is just up here, this, where you have this little, uh, inlet here on the coast, which is the only natural port that Israel has, so that's a great place for the uh, Antichrist, for the armies to bring in supplies via the navy and to lay them out and distribute and supply uh, the armies in the Valley of Megiddo. I believe that is their uh, supply base, that is where they're going to organize themselves where they're going to have their command post, and so you have the gathering of the armies. Of the Antichrist there, and then the next thing that happens is there will be the destruction of the city of Babylon, the destruction of the city of Babylon, which takes place while the Antichrist is there, and this brings tremendous uh, concern to him to, to him. So here in this map, we see the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist there in the valley of Megiddo, that's uh, area one. Uh, Jerusalem is in that green circle down to the southeast of that. And B, up to the upper right, is the location of, of Babylon. It begins with the gathering of the armies there. As the Antichrist comes over from Babylon, you have the armies from the east coming in across the Euphrates and doing battle in that particular area. Here's another map that gives you uh, the... Back up one that gives you the location here, the Valley of Megiddo, and that's another topographical area to show the size of the valley. Uh, this is a shot from Megiddo itself. They've uncovered a the huge tail there. They've uncovered about 27 layers of civilization. And off in the distance there, you can see the Carmel Ridge where Elijah called down fire, uh, fire from heaven. Here's another shot of the upper tail you can see uh, up where the trees are, you can see the top of the mountain. At one t- time, of course, this was just all these uh, di- the dig and the remains were all covered over. And then this is a panoramic shot from uh, the Carmel Ridge looking out over the uh, Valley of Esdralon. And you can see how large it is. There's an uh, Israeli Air Force base out there in the distance. You can see the runways. Uh, Napoleon said of this valley when he saw it that all the armies of the earth could gather and do battle there. It is, would be a huge area that would be the staging area for uh, Armageddon. Now, uh, for the final campaign. Now, the first thing that happens is the gathering at the valley of Megiddo, and then while they're gathering there, God will destroy the city of Babylon. That's what's coming up in the next section in Revelation 16. So in verse 17 we read, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Now these others have affected the seas. They've affected certain specific areas on the land or certain people. The pouring out of the bowl into the air is going to impact the entire earth. This is an atmospheric judgment. Uh, so he pours out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple. Who's that? It's God the Father. Loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, "It is done." Now this isn't the same phrase that Jesus uttered when he had completed his work on the cross. That was to tell us, "I it is finished." This is the Greek word Giganin, which is the perfect active indicative of "ginomai." It is a perfect tense verb indicated completed action. He views this as it's completed. The judgments are over with. This is bringing it all to a conclusion. Uh, Verse 18, we read, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake has not occurred since men were on the earth. So this can't be the earthquake that's mentioned in the sixth seal judgment. It can't be the earthquake that's mentioned at, after the um, uh, death and ascension of the um, two witnesses. It's not the earthquake of Revelation 11. This is the final earthquake, and it's the same ge- astro-geophysical dynamics you have in Joel two and Zechariah fourteen, Matthew twenty four, and what happens is at this point there's this huge earthquake. The Antichrist is gathered his, gathering his troops at Armageddon, and verse nineteen says, "Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell." So this impacts the whole world, worldwide uh, impact of this earthquake. And the great city here is Babylon, which is mentioned midway through the verse. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now, remember, wine is red. It pictures blood. It pictures judgment, destruction. And so that is the imagery here of the wine of judgment. And verse 20, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. So this sees a massive uh, tsunamis that wipe out the islands. Um, the earthquake is so profound it levels mountains. This just envisioned just an incredible geophysical uh, disaster that occurs uh, upon the earth. And then we come to uh, just a couple of shots here. This is literal Babylon, just as ancient um, Ancient Babylon built the Tower of Babel to try to unite mankind with constant movements including the uh uh EU today building their uh, building their headquarters translation headquarters in uh Brussels to look like the unfinished Tower of Babel they they did this intentionally shows the arrogance of man but it is ancient Babylon literal Babylon that will be destroyed Uh, Verse twenty-one: Great hail from heaven fell upon men; each hailstone about the weight of a talent—that's a hundred pounds. So this is just, and and this whole section here from seventeen to twenty-one is a summary of that final destruction of the of the earth and the armies of uh, of the Antichrist. And so this depicts this, summarizes it. Then next time we'll get into chapter seventeen and eighteen which goes through the details of the destruction of uh, Babylon, the destruction of the uh, Antichrist headquarters, and then chapter 19 gets into the final stage in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll make that before Christmas. Jesus is going to make the second coming before Christmas, at least in terms of our study of Revelation. You probably never thought we would get there, but it's close. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So men will blaspheme God because of the plague of hell. Still, they do not change their mind. Earth dwellers are set in their disobedience to God. Nothing will change their mind. But notice, that doesn't stop God from constantly reaching out in grace and constantly giving them options and opportunities to turn. They never will, but he never stops and says, well, I know they won't, so I'm not going to extend grace anymore. And that, see, too often you hear believers say that. Well, they adopt this sort of fatalistic attitude. Well, things are falling apart in this country, so I know God's going to judge it. Well, how do you know God's going to judge it? How do you know this is the end? You know, I've heard people say that. I've heard people say, well, the tribulation is going to occur soon. Jesus is coming back. How do you know that? How, you people go back. To, I've heard people go back to the Old Testament and say, see, just like... When uh, in the Old Testament, when uh, the Southern Kingdom fell, uh, they weren't supposed to do anything to try to uh, to try to save the nation. Well, that's because God sent a prophet who told them that they weren't supposed to do anything to try to save the nation. That He was going to. We have no prophet saying that. Don't fall into this trap that so many Christians are falling into, and make the assumption that Jesus is going to come back, the Rapture is going to occur in the next ten years. There have been too many people who have assumed that in too many generations prior to ours, and it may not occur for many, many more years. The issue for us is are we going to stand and do what we need to do as believers uh, as if Jesus isn't coming back for another hundred years? We can't assume that it's the end. We have to witness. We have to continue to study the word. We have to continue to proclaim the gospel. We have to continue to to teach the word, to challenge people around us with the word because we never know uh, if God will extend grace and cause a change or not. We have to keep doing the right thing even though no one may ever listen. Noah preached for 100 years without a single convert. He didn't give up, and we shouldn't give up either. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, and that grace is always extended before and even during judgment, and that we should be challenged by that to always... Uh, Remember to be gracious to those who are lost, be gracious to those who have been deceived by the cosmic system, and to always extend the truth to them and proclaim the gospel faithfully until you take us home to be with you, either physically through death or when the Lord returns at the rapture. Let us not cave in to the fatalism that so often paralyzes believers, but let us uh, press on. Uh, in terms of our own obedience and in terms of our own dedication to fulfilling the mission that you have given us in terms of evangelism and teaching the word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.